Well, you can turn in your Bibles to Romans 3. We continue with our Roman study, which has been uh, pretty convicting. Um, and I think us pastors have been talking recently, saying, man, these last couple of chapters, this last chapter two, really hitting home with us. You know, none of us can stand before God righteous. So uh, let's continue this morning in the text of Romans in your New Testaments, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, then the book of Romans. Find the big number three. That's chapter three. We'll be looking at verse 9 in just a moment. One of the shows that I always enjoyed watching as a kid and, and still do enjoy is Columbo. Now, most of you who are younger don't know probably the show Columbo. But I love how in Columbo, not only is it the, the, the mystery and the, and the detective work and stuff, but one of the things I love about Columbo is he'll, throughout the episode, come to the person that we all know did it, and he'll act like he's cool with them, like he's friendly with them. In fact, he'll actually act a little incompetent. He'll be like, oh, yeah, you know, we're, we're all good here. And then when he turns to walk away, he'll go, oh, just one more thing, sir. And he'll ask a really, you know, a question. And then the person starts to think like, hmm. And then throughout the episode, I think they start to understand that he's on to me. And then there's, there comes this defining moment in every episode where he presents, he presents evidence which is undeniable. Evidence that leaves the criminal undeniably guilty. And everyone's watching and it's like, yep, they did it. Well, this is what we've experienced in the book of Romans so far. Paul has been acting like Columbo and he has been showing us. So just one more thing, sir. You might think that you're okay, but actually have you considered this? And so we've come to the point now where we have all been charged with unrighteousness and the evidence is overwhelming. The evidence is overwhelming. Now, we've been going through arguably the, maybe the, the most weighty part of Romans in this sense that it's all been building up to what we'll see in two weeks where we get to Christ, where we get to the hope of the gospel. But I don't know about you, but I've been starting to feel this weight. It's kind of like every week, yes, we're unrighteous. Yes, I can't stand before God. And then we, we're hoping, though, we want to get to Christ. We just, we want to quick get to Christ, and we're going to get there. Because this morning, we end the first mini-series in the book of Romans. As you can see on the screen, it says the gospel and our misery. That's what we've been looking at, our misery. And some of you are like, I'm done with the misery part, okay? We're getting there. In two weeks, we're going to, we're going to look at the solution of the gospel, okay? So, but we've got to continue one more sermon here in this mini-series. In Romans 3, we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 18. I want you to read that along with me. And then we'll get into it and see what God's word says here. Romans 3, verse 9 through 18. Here's what God's word says. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. How's that for a Mother's Day text? Right? 
In case you're getting tired of all this conviction, let me remind you, we have to first understand what we're being saved from in order to preach salvation. Why preach salvation if we don't know what we're being saved from? So Paul is making it very, very clear. Here is what you're being saved from. And by the end of our text here this morning, it is not going to be unclear what we are saved from. Once as a teen, I remember feeling the conviction that I needed to share my faith, share Jesus Christ with my friend. It was late at night. I mean, it was dark already, so I'm not sure why I didn't just wait till the next day. But I was compelled. I'm going to go talk to my friend about Jesus. So I walked a couple blocks down to his house. I knock on the door. Again, it's dark. I'm recreating this in my mind. I'm remembering. He opens the door and I say, are you saved? And he looks at me and he goes... Well, one time I was rolling down a hill and I almost hit into a wall and I was saved from that. And I was like, oh man, no, you're not getting it. You're not. But he didn't know what he needed to be saved from. I had to explain to him about sin and talk about the consequences for sin. And so unless we understand what we're being saved from, the, the whole message of salvation doesn't seem to apply. Last week we saw this imaginary dialogue between Mr. Synagogue and Mr. Apostle. Right? And it was back and forth. And this case is being made by Paul. The Jews are guilty before God. But as the Jewish people would have read this letter, they, they would have had objections. And so Paul knows those objections. And he uses justice language. He uses courtroom lingo. And so you can kind of picture in your mind as you know, Mr. Synagogue here raising his hand. Objection, sir. Objection. And then Paul, the prosecutor, continuing to make the case. No, you're guilty. And I think this trial lingo is so appropriate for today because we live in a day and age where the whole idea of mankind being sinful is called into question. I mean, aren't people born basically good? Or maybe we're we're born a blank slate, a tabula rasa, you know? Or, Or maybe there are good people and there are bad people, good seeds and bad seeds. Well, Paul has a decisive answer for us here this morning If you look at verse 9 and 10 that we just read, but notice it again. He says, For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. And this is a tremendous summary of the book of Romans so far. We've gone through Romans, and in in Romans 1 we saw that the Greeks are under sin. Those that are non-Jewish, those that are the rest of the world, they stand Guilty because they had this morality written on their hearts. And not only that, they had creation. And and God's glory is being seen everywhere. His grandeur, his majesty, it's shouting the glory of God. And so they stand without excuse. They've suppressed this truth. They've pushed it down. They've exchanged the truth for a lie. And they've worshipped created things instead of a creator. Chapter 1. And then in Romans 2 and even last week in the beginning of Romans 3, we saw that the Jewish people are also guilty before God. Yes, they're a most privileged people. They have the law. And they were chosen by God out of all of the other nations. And yet, does the Jew stand any better chance in the courtroom of God? What does Paul say in the text? Is the Jew any better off? He says, no, absolutely not. Both Jews and Greeks are guilty before God. In fact, privilege that the Jewish people experience, privilege often leads to pride. And so Paul has been stripping away their pride layer by layer. He's been shooting holes in the armor of their self-righteousness. 
And up to this point, he's been targeting with kind of single shots, you know, this logical defense showing them that they're a sinner. But today in our text, we have kind of some machine gun fire. We have these rapid fire scriptures that Paul presents to the the people of Israel. And he's using their own scriptures. He's using the oracles of God, chapter uh, chapter 3, verse 2, it says. They have the oracles of God. And so Paul is hitting them left and right with all of these different scriptures. And by the way, absolutely no one, regardless of our background, our ethnicity, our morality, none of us escape these scriptures, right? Every single one of us is guilty as we read these scriptures. Notice the first four words of verse 10 here. If you have your Bible open, you'll see chapter 3, verse 10. And these first four words, as it is written. And whenever you see this in the Bible, this is telling us that the author is quoting an Old Testament scripture. Maybe verbatim, maybe loosely. But Paul is saying, it's written in your Hebrew scriptures. And then he gives us a bunch of quotes. And Paul often does this, but he never does it with this many scriptures. This is intense. It's a technique that's often used by Jewish teachers. They would string together scriptures in a row and they would, they would liken it to stringing pearls together. Except these pearls are like pearl grenades, okay? And they're blowing apart self-reliance and pride and self-righteousness. So the evidence is mounted up all throughout the letter so far. It's unrefutable and the judgment, verse 9, we are under sin. That's the judgment. We are under sin. None are righteous, no, not one. Sin has invaded every person in verse 9 and 10. You see that sin has invaded every single person, Jews and Greeks. There are no other people. That includes every single human being. To get the full weight of this, to to, to get the weight of what the people of Israel would would have understood as they read this, you'd have to consider the context for these scriptures that Paul quotes. And we don't have the time to Go through all of them, but I encourage you, I would encourage you, you'll see them up on, the, up on the screen a little bit. You might want to jot down where these scriptures come from. We will take a look at the first one because I want you to understand the way in which Paul is using these quotations. So before we look at Psalm 14, a little side note, I, uh, I think it's interesting that Paul uses these scriptures, all of them poetry. They're all poetic scriptures, and I'm not sure why God decided to use poetry to tell us about our sin and depravity. Maybe it's so that that bitter pill goes down a little easier. I don't know. But God takes the graceful beauty of poetry and he delivers a five-fingered death punch. I don't think any of these poems are going to make it to, into Mother's Day cards this morning. All right. But let's look at uh, verse 10 through 12 of our text. It comes from Psalm 14. One through seven. We're just going to read two, three, and four this morning because I want you to see this is the original scripture. And we'll only do that with this one. So, Psalm 14, two through four says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. So, get the context here. God is looking down out of heaven, He's, he's scanning, He's looking over all of humanity. Is there even one human that is righteous? Even one who pleases me all the time, who keeps the law, and, he, and he, he sees no one. There is not a single righteous human. Then you come into verse 3. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not even one. Verse 4. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? So I want you to understand that the Jewish person, when they read this, David is writing this, 
He just writes, and we read, God is looking down from heaven and no one is righteous. But the Jewish person reads this and they think, yeah, that's right. All those evildoers who are against God and who are against us. So the average Jewish person would have put these wicked people, these depraved people, they're in the category of them. Those that are against Israel, those that are against God, that's the evildoers. God can't find a single one of them that is righteous. I mean, they know from the scripture that no person is righteous, but you have to understand that the Jewish person applied these to Gentiles and not to themselves. I know that because if you look at all the next texts, and you'll see them up on the screen, verse 13a comes from Psalm 5, verse 5 through 10. That's the context of David speaking about his enemies. And in verse 13b comes from Psalm 140. David is asking God to guard him from the hands of the wicked. Verse 14 comes from Psalm 10. And the author is asking God to break the arm of the wicked. Again, those are the wicked people out there. And verse 15 through 17 comes from Isaiah 59. That's the only passage that's directly addressed to the Jews. And it's pretty scathing. And then verse 18 of our text comes from Psalm 36. David asked God to protect him from the wicked. So here's the amazing thing. Paul is taking these scriptures, which the average Jew would have said, yeah, that's right. Those people are wicked. Those people are sinful. Yeah, their throat is an open grave. Yeah, they have turned aside from God. That's right. And now Paul is applying it right to God's chosen people. He's saying all those scriptures that you have loved that describe the wicked world, they actually describe you too. We're all in the same boat. You'd say, well, Paul, what are you doing? Why are you doing this, Paul? I mean, the, the Israelites are different than the Gentiles. Leon Morris describes Paul use, Paul's use of these passages like this. He says, Paul is saying something like, if you ask who are the enemies of God, look in the mirror. And that's kind of what Paul is doing. He's saying, yeah, all those enemies of God, it's actually you. It is so important for us to understand that the distinctions between the righteous, quote-unquote, and the unrighteous, they all dissolve under the holy and the perfect gaze of God. When God looks down from heaven and he sees humanity, there is not the righteous and the unrighteous. All unrighteous. Now, I know this is not the message that we want to hear, especially on Mother's Day. But this is what the word says. This is what scripture teaches us. I, got, I had the opportunity to visit uh, Lake County Prison this week. And I've gone there a number of times. And as I was driving up, this week, it occurred to me that we think of a place like a prison as containing the, the sinners, the wicked ones. They're, they're them over there, and then there's us, and there's a clear distinction. I mean, they're walled off, right? But you have to understand, we all live under the same sky. We all live under the gaze of God, and God doesn't look down and go, oh, they're the righteous, and they're the unrighteous. It says in the, in the Word that He looks down, and He sees that all of us are unrighteous, Every human being is born under sin, the text says. And this phrase under sin means under the dominion, the power of sin. Think of sin like a military general who conquers, who invades, and every single human is under his sway. He has gone throughout the entire world. His dominion is everywhere, and every human being is underneath that. Sin's a tyrant. Romans 5.14 says that because sin spread to all men, death reigned. 
like a king reigns. And Romans 6 uses this phrase of being under sin to uh, compare it to being under the dominion of sin. It says we're under the dominion of sin. So we're born under the thumb of sin. We may be born free as Americans, but we're not born free as humans. You see a lot of people wearing those t-shirts, born free, right? Well, in this country, we can say that, praise the Lord. But as humans, we're not born free. We have a cruel taskmaster, a barbaric overlord who controls us. And here's the sad thing about it. People don't know this. Most people don't realize this. They think they're in control. Like, I can make the decisions that I want to make. And in some ways, they are making the decisions they want to make. But what they don't realize is sin has them under its thumb. They're under this overlord who dominates their life. Now, lest you think I'm being a drama queen... Let's look at what the text says. Look at verse 11 through 18 again, and we'll see. How has sin invaded? How has sin dominated? Well, just look here again. Verse 11, no one understands. No one seeks for God. 12, we've all turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Our throat is an open grave. Our tongues are used to deceive. The venom of snakes is under our lips. Our mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Our feet are swift to shed blood. In our past, our ruin and misery. There is no way of peace. There is no fear of God before our eyes. Sin has not only invaded every person, it has invaded every part of our person. Sin has invaded and made its way into every part of our nature. Now, I've said this before in our series, but we are not as righteous as we think we are. Or you could say it a different way. You could say we are far more unrighteous than we ever thought we were. Paul is showing us it's worse than you thought. This passage is one of the clearest for the doctrine of total depravity. And it's really vital that we understand what depravity is and what depravity is not. Because a lot of people reject the doctrine of depravity. They reject it and they say, well, what about all the good that people do? I mean, so many people helping other people, scientific advancements, the medical field. I see people all the time who are good, civil servants in our community, right? I mean, how can people be depraved? We still see people doing good because we are made in the image of God. We have the image of God stamped on our personhood. And so whenever we see somebody doing good, it's because they still retain the image of God. It's Mother's Day today, right? How about the love of a mother? Could there be anything more pure than that? That love, that sacrificial love, that caring, that nurturing. People can do good. Speaking of motherhood and parenting, I like this quote from Ted Koppel. Anyone who denies depravity never had a two-year-old. Right? Or I think three, especially, right? (laughs) Here's the key. Total depravity refers to extent, not degree. So you could write that down and may ponder it later. But total depravity refers to extent, not degree. It's not that we are as sinful as we could be, degree. There are some people we look at and say, that's a really wicked person. So we're not all as sinful as we could be. Praise the Lord because of his mercy. If God didn't give us his mercy and his restraining hand on this world, it would be a, a unfathomable thing. But total depravity means that every part of our nature has been corrupted, every single part, and that's what Romans 3 tells us. Maybe I could describe it this way. I have a 
glass here of clear water, Cedar Lake water, all right? See, it's clear. Don't believe the naysayers. All right. Now, I've even been drinking it. See, look. It's good. If this water represents our nature, and I had with me a little bottle of incredibly dangerous poison, which I don't have. I thought it wise not to bring that. And I dropped a one drop of poison in that water. Would you drink that water? You say, I don't drink Cedar Lake water anyway. Okay, well, forget that, okay? You wouldn't drink it because the poison has spread. It has infiltrated. It has, it has become part of the whole. It's only one drop. If I had a glass that was pure poison filled up, well, obviously deadly, but it, the point is this. Some people might be more sinful than others, but we're all completely sinful. Sin has invaded every part of our personhood. And so whatever we do, it's not acceptable to God. Total depravity means that every part of our nature is unable to please God. And here's another way to explain it. It's like the boy who's playing in the mud outside, and he is muddy. I mean, he's got mud from his head to his toes and all in between his fingers. And then he goes, you know what? Tomorrow's Mother's Day. I should go in and, and clean up for my mom and, you know, make her feel loved. And so he goes into the living room. He grabs the white pillows and he arranges them right and makes sure the white drapes are all good and he dusts all the dust off the walls, you know, with his hands. And before you know it, there's mud all over the place. Was what he did good? Well, on one hand, you could say, yeah, his intentions were good. He wanted to do a good thing. But everything he did was tainted by that mud. It's the same thing with us as humans. Even the good that we do is not acceptable to God. I want to show you Bethel's uh, doctrinal statement, one little part of it. I don't think we often know enough about our doctrine here. So here is one piece of that under mankind and sin. You'll, you'll see this and I'll read it for you here. Adam and Eve were created completely righteous and they lived in perfect harmony with their creator. Yet by their own choice, they rebelled against the moral law of God and fell from their sinless state. Because of Adam's disobedience, all people have lost their innocence before God and are inherently corrupt. Every person is therefore a sinner by nature, by choice, and by divine declaration. Now I want you to notice that last little underlying part there. We're sinners by nature, by choice, and by divine declaration. And in our text here, this morning, Paul is showing us this very thing. We are sinners by nature, and we are sinners by choice. Well, how has sin invaded every part of us? Okay, Pastor Mark, you're saying sin has infiltrated our whole being. How so? Well, look at the scriptures. It walks us through different aspects of our nature, starting with the mind. Verse 11, it says, no one understands. No one understands. This is known as the noetic effects of the fall. Our mind, the, the very place that we understand, that we reason, that we comprehend, it has been hurt by the fall. It has been corrupted by the fall. You can keep a finger here. You can flip back to Romans 1 and verse 19 through 22, and you can see we've, we've already seen this in chapter 1, verse 19. It's talking about the glory of God in creation. What can be known about God is plain to them. They can, they can see it because God has shown it to them. Verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly 
perceived. So people see the glory of God. They, they see creation. They know that there's a God. But verse 21, although they knew God, they knew him, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. So you see, even our mind, our reasoning center, our ability to comprehend, it's been affected by the fall. We do not understand. Al Mohler gives 14 ways that our mind has been affected by the fall. And it was interesting for me to read through. I wouldn't have thought of all of these, but I'll just kind of spout them out to you here. Here are some things. Ignorance. It's because of the fall. Distractedness. Because of the fall. I struggle with that, right? We would be so focused if it wasn't for sin and how it's affected our mind. Forgetfulness. Prejudice. There would be no prejudice. There would be no racism if it wasn't for the fall. Because our minds, the ability we have to judge and the the, the uh, inclinations we have, the undercurrents inside of our mind have been affected by the fall. Intellectual fatigue, ever experienced that? Inconsistencies, failure to, dry, dr- failure to draw the right conclusion. Now we know we never struggle with that, but everyone else does. Intellectual apathy, dogmatism and closed-mindedness, intellectual pride, vain imagination, miscommunication, Apparently we'd have perfect marriages if it wasn't for the fall, right? And partial knowledge. All of these things, and there's probably far more, have been affected by the fall. Our minds are not perfect. I don't need to tell you that. You know that. You've experienced all of these things. In fact, sin has so affected our minds that even something like Bible study, preparing a sermon, it requires the utmost diligence and study and prayerfulness, saying, God, help me to understand what you want me to speak Or when you're opening your Bible and reading it at home, you you say, God, help me to understand your word. And he will do that through his Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit has to work through our flawed mind. And our mind has been affected by sin. Not just our mind, our affections. See the second part of verse 11 there? What does it say? No one seeks for God. No one is seeking. Everybody is hiding. And people hide from God for the same reason that criminals hide from the police. They don't want to be found by him. They don't want to see him. They don't want him. R.C. Sproul said this. It's, you won't see it up on the screen, but I want to read it for you. It's a great quote. He said, We see people searching for the things that we know can be found only in Christ. But we make the gratuitous assumption that because they're seeking the benefits of God, they must therefore be seeking God. That is the very dilemma of fallen creatures. We want the things that only God can give us, but we do not want him. We want peace, but not the prince of peace. We want purpose, but not the sovereign purposes decreed by God. We want meaning found in ourselves, but not in his rule over us. It's well said. I'll never forget a debate on a college campus that I, that I was able to witness. And it was a Christian apologist, and it was a, an atheist or an agnostic, and... It was a secular university. Afterwards, students could ask questions. And so one of the students who was particularly bold and proud and said, I'm an atheist and I'm proud of it. And he challenged the apologist and he said, I want you to prove what you just said. I want you to prove to me that Jesus resurrected from the dead. I want you to prove that this Bible is inspired. And the apologist said, I'll never forget this. He said to the guy, he said, well, Let me just ask you this question first. If I could prove it to you, 
if I could prove to you the things that I just said, would you believe in Jesus? And the, the student paused. He was kind of in an awkward spot. And he said, no, I wouldn't. And that was incredible to me because what that's saying is, I do not want to believe in Jesus. I do not want to follow Jesus. See, the, our, 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 our most inward part of us, or even our affections, what we love, what we want, it's been hurt by the fall. How about our will? Our will, look at the next verse here, verse 12. All have turned aside. Right? They've, they've gone their own way. This is a willing, deliberate avoidance of God. No one's forcing people to make these decisions. No one's forcing people to sin or to turn away from God. They do it willingly on their own. And some people, they have a real problem with this theology because they say, well, you know, I didn't choose to be born and I didn't choose to be born sinful. Yeah, but every day that you've lived, you've cho chosen to do what you want to do. No one forced you. No one twisted your arm to sin. You wanted to do it. You desired to do it. And so we willingly flee away from God. We should be accountable to God because we can't blame anyone else except ourselves. No one forces us to do wrong. We do that very well on our own. So our will is corrupted. We know the way we're supposed to go and we say, yeah, I want to go this way. I uh, remember driving in the car with my dad one time, always an adventure, and we came up to an intersection and a little before the intersection over across the road, on the other side of the road, was the place we were going to. My dad decided, oh, let me, let me also tell you, there was a big concrete median in the middle of the road, okay? My dad decided, I don't want to go up to the light, take a left, take another left. I'm just going to drive over the median. I mean, why not, right? So the whole family's in the car. My dad just decides to cut the wheel and drive over the median strip. And my mom is freaking out. And she's like, Mark, what are you doing? That's my dad's name, too. And... He's like, I, it's right there. I'm, you know, my dad knew the rules. He knew you're not supposed to drive over median strips, but he wanted to go his own way. He decided to do his own thing. It made sense to him. It was better than the other way. I think I can share that because it's Mother's Day, not Father's Day. So I think I'm okay in case my dad hears it. In a similar way, we think we know better than God. We think we have a better way to live. And so we say, yeah, this is the way that God has told us to live. I'm going this way. Our mind, our emotions, our will is contaminated by sin, every part of us. So can you start to see how our whole being has been corrupted? That one drop of poison, or more than one drop, has corrupted every part of us, our mind, our will, our emotions. And then if you look at the scriptures, what happens? Paul starts to talk about our speech and our actions. From the inside out, this sin works itself through us. Verse 13, their throat is an open grave. Think about how bad that would smell. Right? Think about an open grave, the disgusting nature to that. The death, the, the terrible smell. We're not talking about bad breath here. Okay? Uh, Orbit's gum is not going to help this. This is, this is something different. These are words of death. We might call them mummy mouths, right? Okay, it's like a mummy mouth. It's this death speech. Proverbs 18 says that death and life are in the power of the tongue. The tongue has the ability to speak words of death and speak words of life. And we, we keep reading in the scriptures, it says they use their tongues to deceive. They mislead people with their tongues. So we have throat and we have tongues and 
We have lips and it just kind of works its way out. The venom of asps or poisonous snakes like a cobra or a viper is on or under our lips. Our words can bite and our words can inject poison into people. I mean, who among us has not experienced very hurtful words that have lasted a while? We all know that words can hurt just as much as sticks and stones. Verse 14, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Just watch any blockbuster movie, right? It's cursing. Are your words towards others life or are they death? You need to examine yourself. Are my words life-giving or are they death to people? I mean, how many mummy mouths were there this morning on the way to church? I mean, it's Mother's Day, of course. There was no fighting. There was no arguing. There was no anger towards your parents, right? Kids, here's a little tip. One of the best gifts you can give your mom today, words of life, not words of death. Encourage your mom. Respect your mom. Speak words of life to her. She will love that present. Trust me, right? And Paul moves from our speech and then he, he goes to our actions and so it's working itself out, right? The, our, our, our sin is, is corrupted every part of our being and now it's, it's our actions. Our feet are quick to shed blood. And I, I, my first thought was the numerous teens over the years who were killed for their Air Jordans. You've heard stories like this, right? Even in Chicago this has happened. People killed for their shoes. We're so quick to, to, to murder just because we want what we want. And maybe you see that as a ridiculous and irrelevant example, something so far removed from you. But remember, total depravity is not degree, it's extent. We all have that sin in us. Murderous anger, it's in us. We may not be as sinful as we could be, but we're sinful in every part of us. The Bible tells us that anger is cut out of the same cloth as murder. The story of human history is war and it's murder and it's betrayal, incredibly painful actions done to other people. And that's not just the story of the world, that's our family story. I mean, think about your, your family history. Who here has the perfect family tree? Anyone have any, you know, messed up branches? Any skeletons in the closet? Or is your family always a harmonious family? Anyone? No. None of us. As you think about the world around you, just watch the news. Just read the paper. You see evil everywhere. You, you see it all over the place. People speaking evil. People doing evil. This week I was reading about the despicable men in India who have captured women and all the things that they've done, and I was overwhelmed with, like, what kind of human does this to another human? Have you ever felt that? You know, you're reading the paper or watching, you're like, what kind of person does this? Well, the Bible has an answer for us. Paul says, this is why. It's because we're not good people who occasionally do bad things. We're actually inherently bad. We inherently have evil. We are totally to pray this, so you start to, it, it makes sense. That's why the world is the way it is. There is no other worldview that can account for the sin in our world. There's just none. See, in every other worldview, the idea is to create a gulf between the good people, quote, and the evil people. Uh, we want to be on this, we want to be here in the good, the good section. Except Paul is leveling the playing field. Paul is saying, guess what? We're all in the same boat. We're all evil in every part of our being. 
And what's the result of all this? Verse 16 and 17. What, is, what happens because of all of this evil? Verse 16 says, there's ruin and there's misery and there is no peace. Verse 17. The way of peace they have not known. Now tell me that verse 17 is not a good picture for what most people experience. The way of peace they have not known. So many people doing obviously evil acts and finding no peace. And there's people who are trying to be good, trying to be moral, trying to be different, and yet they can't seem to find peace because there's no way of peace for them. And in verse 18, we have the summary of why people do what they do. Why is all this in the world? Why do people do these things? Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And this is the problem in a nutshell, right? We do not fear God. We, we don't have God in front of us. We don't think about God enough. We don't consider, what would God think about my words? As I get ready to do this action, what would, what would God want me to do? What does his word say? There's no fear of God before our eyes. We push thoughts of him aside, and we suppress the truth, and we exchange the truth, and we believe a lie. What if we were to live with thoughts of God always before us? Before I speak, I think, what, would God be honored with this speech? Yeah, as a parent, I could really learn right, to do that. Would God be pleased with what I'm going to say? Or would God be pleased with what I'm going to do? If we're able to live with the fear of God before our eyes, they call that quorum Deo, which means before the face of God, before the eyes of God. Because God is always watching. He sees everything I do. He knows everything that my heart desires to do what if I were to live in such a way that everything I do everything I say would please God we don't do that we are under sin the scripture says which actually means something even more frightening I want you to look at verse 19 and 20 so this is in conclusion here verse 19 and 20 read this with me now we know that whatever the law says it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So we're under sin, but being under sin means being under the law. And here's where it gets particularly frightening. Yes, we're sinners. Okay, what does that matter? What's the big deal? We're all sinners. Okay, well... We're under sin, which means we're under the law. And we've already seen in our study of Romans that the law is God's perfect standard, his perfect measure. And we all fall woefully short. We can't keep the external part of the law. We can't keep the internal aspects of the law. We can't keep the law. We're under the law, it says. So picture it this way. I think this is what Paul has in mind. The law is above us and the law is ready to crush us. It's as if there's a giant anvil hanging three inches above my head that says law on it. And at any moment, it's going to drop and it's going to flatten me like a pancake because the law is over me. I'm under sin and I'm under the law. Where can we go? What can we do? We're getting there in Romans. But we have no defense. The best thing we can do, it, it says, is put our hand over our mouth and just be quiet because we stand guilty. We stand accountable to God. We should stop trying to defend ourselves. But God, I'm such a good person. I've helped so many people out. I'm not as bad as that guy. 
we have no defense. Stop digging yourself into a hole. The case has been made. And the Old Testament scriptures here in Romans 3, they bear testimony to the fact that every one of us is sinful. And these scriptures are a witness that does not lie. They never commit perjury. The case has been made and the prosecution rests. And see, once we realize that we're accountable to God, once you get to that place in your life where you say, okay, God, you've worn me down through the book of Romans, or maybe this has already happened to you, okay? I stand guilty before you. I can't please you. I can't keep the law. And I'm going to stop striving to just be a good person so that hopefully I make it into heaven. And we realize that verse 20 says, the law or morality was never designed to save me. I was never given this Bible so that I could keep the law perfectly and earn my way to heaven. Rather, the law is supposed to show me that I can't keep it. It's supposed to instruct me that I'm unable and then it's supposed to carry me to Christ. And then I realize, oh, Christ is the answer, not the law. We like to downplay and minimize our depravity, but the scriptures won't let us do that. There is none that are righteous, no, not one. And yet, there was one One human who was not polluted in any way by sin. You can think of this glass again, right? Clear, perfect, holy. Not a a drop of poison in him. He was 100% human, the Bible says. And he was 100% divine. And so he lived this life. And he perfectly kept God's law. And he perfectly obeyed his father. And he is the solution for our sins. In two weeks, we're going to get to this new mini-series, which is the gospel is God's solution. Well, there is one righteous one. And here's the beauty at the end of this sermon, okay, is that, yes, we're born totally depraved. We are born with sin coursing through our veins, and it's invaded every part of our being. But there is one who was never under sin. He's only been over sin. He's only been victorious over sin. And his victory over sin was complete when he resurrected from the grave. When he resurrected, he declared that sin has been conquered for every single believer. So though we're born under sin, if we put our trust in Jesus Christ, we believe in him, we say, Jesus, I need your righteousness because I am totally a sinner. There's a transaction that happens. And he that knew no sin, Christ, became sin so that I might become the righteousness of God. So yes, we're born under sin, but we can be victorious over sin through Jesus Christ. Do we still struggle with sin? Absolutely. Uh, Romans 6 and Romans 7 will address this at length and Paul will show us, yes, the believer still struggles with sin. We have residual depravity. We're not totally depraved anymore because remember, total depravity is that every part of our being is unable to please God. Well, now we are able to please God through the Holy Spirit's power, but we still have residual depravity. This the sin that is in every part of our being, our minds, our hearts, our wills, our emotions. But here's the thing. We are now free. We're free. We don't have to obey sin. Yes, sin is that overlord, but we don't have to answer to him because Jesus is our savior. Jesus has already defeated him for the believer, okay? So so we don't have to say yes to sin. Yes, we still struggle, but we are free. Here, Romans 6, verse 17 and 18, just a little taste of what's to come, right? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. 
and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. So there is victory over sin. Today, if, if you're still under sin, if my illustration of the anvil over your head, that's you, you're saying, yeah, I've never really repented for my sin. I've been going my own way and that, that anvil is gonna crush me. When I stand before God one day, I don't know how he's not going to declare me guilty. Well, then I, I, I implore you today, cry out to Jesus. Say, Jesus, you won victory over sin. Would you be my savior? Would you take my sin? Would you take it away? Would you make me pure? Because I want your righteousness. And then you live as a Christian who has victory over sin. If you're a Christian that's being dominated by sin today, I want to remind you, you're free. Somebody needs to remind you, you are free. You're living like you're dominated. You're living like you have that cruel overlord over you, but you do not. You serve a different master, Jesus Christ. Your identity is in Christ. Your identity is not in being this totally depraved sinner. So for you this morning, I say, cry out to Jesus and say, God, would you make me more pure? Would you change me? Would you change me from the inside out? I know that my mind is still affected by sin and my heart and my emotions and my will, but I want you to make me new. I want to submit myself to you and commit myself to you. This Mother's Day, like many other days, but especially Mother's Day, has mothers praying for their children, both their small children and their adult children, that they might know Jesus Christ. Could that be you this morning? Maybe your mom has been praying for you for a long time. That's a great Mother's Day gift, trust in Jesus Christ. But do it for God and for his glory and for the sake of your soul. Cry out to Jesus. Ask him to save you.